Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Let's continue our series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus, today with a message entitled, The Sufferings of Jesus, Part 1. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In 2004, filmmaker Mel Gibson produced the film The Passion of the Christ. When the film was released, a great many people criticized it for a great many reasons. Some said it promoted anti-Semitism, and others said it was too violent, and still others wondered how a film about Jesus could be R-rated. shouldn't be this way, they said. No studio would sign on, and in the end, Gibson fronted the money for the movie himself. And of course, the film was a box office hit, one of the highest rated films in history. But what of the criticism that it was too violent? One well-known theologian said, the sufferings of Jesus are more than can be portrayed in the film. Jesus suffered far more than the passion of the Christ portrayed. You know, it is to that theme that I want to address our thoughts today. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10, Paul is describing his own sufferings. He speaks of being afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair. And then he adds a curious phrase. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. I think he was saying that the memory of Christ's suffering gave him all that was necessary as he approached his own suffering. He meditated frequently on the sufferings of Christ so that when he suffered, his own sufferings would seem quite bearable. And so if the great apostle thought it was wise to meditate on the sufferings of Christ, I want to give us that exercise today. I think this is necessary for for the common portrayal of Jesus is a portrayal that sees him as laughing all the time, a great smile on his face. And as attractive as that is, I don't doubt that Jesus laughed, by the way, but the overarching portrayal of him in the Bible is surely not that. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That is to say, grief and sorrow were his constant and common companions so that these were his most frequent emotions. Today, let's find out why. Before we come to the cross, let's notice that Jesus was acquainted with suffering all of his life. It's not as if he was smiling until the cross and then suddenly he entered into his sufferings. That's not the case. Let me suggest six areas in his life in which he suffered. First, Jesus suffered in his temptations. According to both Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he was attacked by Satan with three temptations. That he turned the rocks into bread, that he'd throw himself from the temple in which the angels would rescue him, and that he would bow down to Satan and worship him and thus receive authority over the nations from an evil source. And of course, as we know, after Jesus resisted the temptations, Luke 4.13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. See, that indicates that the temptations never ended there. An opportune time no doubt meant a time when Jesus was vulnerable. Satan was always ready with a new temptation. So if you want to understand Jesus' temptation, it's most important to consider Hebrews 4 verse 15. The passage says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Consider both halves of that sentence. He was tempted as we are. All the temptations common to human experience are also common to him. 
He knew what it was to be tempted with envy, fits of anger, lust, slander, jealousy, strife, lack of thankfulness, idolatry, revenge, deceit, lies. Are you shocked that Jesus would be tempted with these things? Well, these are human temptations that are common to all of us. And yet, even as he faced these things, Hebrews reminds us that in all of these things, he was without sin. That is, he resisted these things. He looked to his heavenly Father for strength. He said no to each of these things every single time. And it's for this reason that I'm going to argue that his temptations were more severe than ours. You see, giving in to temptation is like lancing a boil. Once you give in to them, the temptation has lost its strength, it's satisfied. But if we resist a temptation, the temptation only grows in intensity. If you've never resisted temptation, well, try it. It's far harder to resist than to succumb to it. See, I'm saying that at all points, Jesus resisted all temptation for a lifetime fighting and struggling against them, never giving in. Such intensity is difficult to imagine, and it surely was a part of his suffering. Whether it was disobedience to his parents as a boy, or all-out fits of unrighteous anger at those who had wronged him, he went straight to the cross, never having given in to even one of the literally hundreds of thousands of temptations he faced. This led to an intensity of suffering that's very difficult for us to imagine. I said I wanted to point out six areas of his suffering before we even come to the cross. See, up till now, I've only highlighted one. A second is shown to us in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, when we read that passage, we might think about Gethsemane. Jesus is in the garden just before his arrest and crucifixion. The disciples have fallen asleep in sheer exhaustion, and he's left alone crying out to God with such intensity that the blood vessels in his forehead are breaking and drops of blood are congealing in the night air and falling as clumps to the ground. But here's the question. Just how often did Jesus' mission, his call to be the sin-bearer for the world, result in these kinds of prayers and crying out to God for, for strength to bear his load? See, when the passage says he learned obedience by what he suffered, you know, I can't help but, but look ahead in Hebrews all the way to chapter 12, where we're told that God introduces sufferings into the lives of all believers so that we will lose our attachment to this world. Suffering produces a kind of discipline in the lives of the godly. If that's so for every one of us, when one can only wonder about the kind of suffering that the father introduced into the life of his son in order to ready him for the suffering of the cross. Well, We've talked about two kinds of suffering that Jesus bore. First is the suffering of resisting sin, and second is the suffering that disciplines him for the mission that he had. Now a third kind of suffering, and here I'm I'm reading Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 4. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
See, the hostility of men that the writer of Hebrews mentions is seen in numerous ways. For instance, Mark chapter 3, verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Or look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, in that example, would you notice two things? First, I notice that Jesus is constantly being scrutinized and criticized, but, but I also notice that the Pharisees are trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and his disciples. They're trying to get the 12 to mistrust him. That's why they're having this private conversation just between them. So I come back again to Gethsemane, the night before his betrayal and arrest. And Matthew 26, verse 38 has him saying, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. See, it's hard to imagine what the constant criticism and constant mistrust and constant second guessing did to him. His family criticized him. The religious leaders criticized him. Did you know that before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was already being criticized? People were asking, why he didn't prevent this from happening in the first place. People said he was demon-possessed. People accused him of breaking the Sabbath. They accused him of blasphemy, of breaking long-treasured Jewish traditions that sustained Israel. And all the while, Jesus was under no illusions. He knew exactly where all this opposition was leading. They wanted him dead. I've said that Jesus suffered greatly when tempted, that he suffered when his heavenly Father was teaching him obedience, that he suffered the most appalling opposition of others. Let me add three more areas. He suffered, no doubt, when his earthly father Joseph died. Fifth, he suffered as he wept outside of the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Yeah, he raised him from the dead, but the constant pain of suffering and death in the lives of others deeply affected him. And finally, sixth, he suffered as the cross grew ever nearer. I think Jesus suffered in life more than any person has ever suffered. It's hard to imagine such an unrelenting assault of suffering, a suffering that never decreased, but it only intensified. Isaiah was right. He was a man of sorrows, fully acquainted on a first name basis with suffering. For anyone seeking to know God or to understand the Bible and how it can be applied to your daily life, Back to the Bible Canada provides trustworthy Bible teaching resources addressing relevant questions of life and faith. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month. Or consider even becoming a member of our 1119 Fellowship, our monthly giving program. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program you're hearing right now is heard in your community and across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become an 1119 monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
As the cross drew ever nearer, Jesus entered more deeply in the encounter of suffering. I've already cited Matthew 26, verse 38, as he draws his disciples together in Gethsemane, trying to help them to see what he's going through. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He wanted them to stay awake with him. The, the crushing thought of being alone in so dark of an hour was almost more than he could bear. But for some reason, the disciples still had not grasped the cross, even while he'd made the reality of the cross so plain to them. In the end, the emotion of the events of the past several days left them exhausted, and they abandoned him to their own sleep. And he suffers alone with loud cries and tears as he cries out to God. I have wanted to paint a picture of a suffering Messiah going towards the cross. Now, I am more than aware that there is a deeply physical and a spiritual suffering that happens on the cross, and, and I'm going to speak about that tomorrow. But, but for today, I want us to consider the physical sufferings of our Savior as he's moving toward the cross. And that brings me back to Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. You're going to remember the whipping of Jesus and the horrible pain of the cross, but I want to speak about all the events that led to those events. Did you know that Jesus underwent not just one, but six trials? You know, most of us remember the last one, the sixth, and I'll speak about that tomorrow. That was the last trial before Pilate that led to the whipping and the scourging that Mel Gibson portrayed so well in his film. But there was a great drama before that. So let's begin. Jesus was arrested on the night that he prayed on the Mount of Olives in the garden named Gethsemane. Judas the betrayer led a mob and he was arrested in the middle of the night. And then with that, very quickly, a first trial was arranged. Jesus is led to the house of a man named Annas. He's the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Now, this was not an official trial. This was the first attempt to cook the outcome of the final trial. They needed to have a secret meeting to decide on a strategy and decide how to get this by the people and by the Romans. So this meeting was held at night when no one else was watching. Jesus needed to be put to death quickly. Charges needed to be discovered. And so the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And it was here that they didn't like the answers and they started to strike him. I mean, imagine that. I mean, which is this, a trial or a mob striking him when they don't like his answers? But all of this leads to trial number two. Having failed in the house of Annas, they now move him to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. Here the elders and scribes gather. A new plan is hastily put together. Here they call false witnesses, but their testimony is not consistent. And at this point, Jesus makes no answers to the charges brought against him. And finally, in desperation, for everything's going badly, the high priest demands he answer the question, are you the Christ? And then, are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus now speaks because on this, he's willing to give a reply. He says, you've said it yourself, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his robe and he screams out, blasphemy. We have no need for witnesses. This is the evidence that we've been looking for. And now the crowd starts spitting on him and, and beating him with their fists. Now we move to trial number three. They move him again, now to the meeting place of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. It's now very early Friday morning and they're in a hurry. 
The entire council is called to an emergency assembly. Here they ask him, are you the Christ? They want him to slowly get at the charge. They need him to repeat what he said in the last trial. And he says, if I answer, you won't believe me. And then they press him on the earlier question, are you the son of God? And he again answers the way he did before. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of God. They can't believe it. He has with ease given them what they want. All the other testimony closes down. He will be killed not because he claimed to be the Messiah or he made them look like fools or that he misled the people or that he created a public nuisance or that he claimed to be a king. No, no. He will be killed because he claimed to be the son of God. That will be the charge. You have to tell the people that. Then they'll turn against him, at least so they think. But the Romans, well, they won't. So what do you do now? Now, we move now to trial number four. Jesus is brought before Pilate at a place called a Praetorium. It was the military headquarters of the Romans in the city in a place called the Antonio Fortress. It was also Pilate's residence when in the city. It had inside of it a grand open courtyard, but the Jews stay outside because they're concerned that should they enter the residence of a Gentile, they're going to become defiled. They're very good Bible men, don't you know? They keep the law. It hasn't occurred to them how defiled they already are. There's an irony here that overwhelms the person who's reading the biblical text. So the sixth command says you shall not murder, and the ninth command says you shall not bear false witness. These people have just lined up their false witnesses by the score, and all these men care about is being ritually clean to participate in the Passover. Imagine how evil these men actually are. Jesus knows that. And so Pilate is forced to go outside and meet with them. He wants to know what charge they have, and they don't know what to say. That he claims to be the Son of God is not going to register with him. The Romans were tolerant of all sorts of religious claims, and so what do they say? Well, they decided to try to sidestep this issue. They say they would not bring anyone to him unless it was serious. And finally, they say he he forbids paying taxes to Caesar and he claims to be a king. Pilate goes into the praetorium and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And, And after a lengthy conversation, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm sending no one to fight for an earthly kingdom. Well, Pilate's heard enough. He goes out and tells the Jews, I find no fault in him. There's a great commotion. All manner of charges are brought against him, except that he claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate's amazed. Jesus is giving no answer. I mean, what do you do with this group of people who are whipping themselves into a religious lather? I mean, how do you condemn a man who's not a zealot, who's remaining calm when everyone else is fanatical? But the last thing Pilate needs is a riot among religious fanatics. So what's he to do? Well, we come now to trial number five. Pilate finds out Jesus is from Galilee. Ah, that's just a ticket. So he he sends Jesus to the residence of King Herod, for Galilee is in his jurisdiction. Let Herod, the man whom Pilate despises, sort this matter out. Well, Herod's delighted to see him. He's heard so much about him. Perhaps Jesus is going to do a miracle for him. But Jesus just stands there and he refuses to speak to Herod. So Herod mocks him and treats him with contempt and dresses him in a kingly robe as a lark. And all his court officials find him to be a joke and and sends him back to Pilate. There are enough crazy people running around Israel already. Who needs this one? 
And for some reason, and the Bible never describes how that came to be, but Herod, sending Jesus back to Pilate, begins a friendship between these two men who used to hate each other. Fascinating friends in condemning the Son of God. And it's only now that Jesus comes to the final trial, trial number six, before Pilate, in which he's going to be beaten and mocked and forced to carry his own cross and head up the hill where they're going to crucify him. See, all these events are the culmination of his suffering. Imagine a low-intensity headache that just keeps building until it becomes a raging migraine so that it's the only thing that you know. So it is with the sufferings of Jesus. He never knew a day when he didn't suffer. And just when the sufferings had reached such an intensity that you would think he can't survive this anymore, he's only then at the beginning of the place that leads to the cross. It serves us well then to do what Paul said he did when he spoke in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10. Christians should always carry about in them a picture of the sufferings of our Lord Jesus. When we do that, we remember how great a salvation he has purchased for us. We also remember that our sufferings are but a small part of the suffering that he bore on our behalf. Perhaps the overriding issue here is that we must not succumb to a lesser picture of Jesus. He is the man of sorrows. He is the one who at all moments in time was on a first-name basis with pain and with loss and sorrow and finally with death. He tasted all of these things in their fullness for us. Never, never can we ever think that our Lord will not understand us when we suffer. Rather, it is the other way around. It's we that don't understand his suffering. But here's the beauty of all of the Easter story. He suffered in this way for us so that we might be set free from our sin and made right before God. What a precious story this is. John, I'm curious, as we talk about the sufferings of Jesus and us relating to those sufferings, is that so supposed to somehow make our suffering easier? Yes, I think it is exactly that. Uh, we should remember that when we suffer, it is part of our identification with Christ. Look, the cross has a lot of lessons for us. I mean, the, the central lesson is always he died for us. It's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus where his death removes our sins and presents us whole before God. That is the central lesson of the cross, but it's not the only lesson. I mean, one of the lessons is that Christ calls us to identify with him and invites us to participate with him in suffering. And when we suffer, we should remember exactly that. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada as Dr. Neufeld continues his Easter series. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement from a listener. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. And another listener wrote, thanks for these blessed words, Dr. Newfeld." As a Bible-studying student, it's encouraging to hear this type of message. Thank you to both of these supporters and all who welcome our Bible teaching into your home. 
Make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. For more information or to give support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.